welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode one. I'm Marion Jones, and this is my ninth City Break series. Welcome back if you've listened to any of the others, and an especially warm welcome if you're new to City Breaks today. So then, Edinburgh, just listen to this. If you're going to pick a city to get stuck in your head forever, like a first love, then smoky, beery, hilly Edinburgh is a good choice to make. That's Christopher McNabb in the foreword to his book, A History of Edinburgh. He goes on to explain that it really is a city for all seasons. Quote, It's a divine place all year round, cold and clear in winter, eternally sunlit in spring, crowded and clubbable in its short, wet, festival-strewn summer, and so eager to start autumn that you can smell the leaves falling in mid-August. There will, of course, be quite a lot more to say about the weather in Edinburgh. I don't know if everybody would agree with the eternally sunlit in spring idea, although it is certainly true that in the sunlight and in spring, Edinburgh does look especially beautiful. There have been fans of Edinburgh in every century, and just to give a little time to one more, the poet Robert Ferguson, an Edinburgh man who died very sadly at the age of only 24. But even though he only wrote for a short time, he left a reputation behind, and his most famous poem was surely Old Reeky, a love song to the city of Edinburgh, not an over-romanticised one, one that went through a day in the life of the city in all its jostling, bustling, crowded, smoky, smelly reality, but which ends after some 300 lines or so with a fond farewell. Reeky, farewell, I ne'er could part with thee, but we a dowie heart. Edinburgh has been called over the centuries the Athens of the North, a reference, I think, to its classical beauty, yes. There is even an unfinished copy of the Parthenon upon a hillside outside the city, begun in 1826 to commemorate the dead from the Napoleonic Wars, but never finished for lack of funds. As is the way with Edinburgh being surrounded by hills, every now and then from the city you do catch a glimpse of the Parthenon. And the other reason for calling it the Athens of the North is the fact that it was the home to such intellectual fervour and activity in the period known as the Scottish Enlightenment. Enlightenment is a particularly interesting word when it comes to Edinburgh because it's often described as a city which is dark and brooding, something to do with the blackened granite, I think, of so many of the buildings. And, dare we say it, also perhaps because of the weather. Right, it is no Englishman's place to criticise the weather in Scotland but there are plenty of examples from over the centuries of Scots who loved their home country, and Edinburgh particularly, but were in agreement that the weather wasn't always great. Here's a particularly graphic example, written in the 16th century by the Scottish bishop, Gavin Douglas. He was actually describing Rome, but when you read it, as people said at the time, it really sounded very much like Edinburgh. OK then, here goes. Sour, bitter blasts and biting showers seemed on the ground a bit like hell, bringing back to our mind in every place ghostly shadows of old age and grisly death, thick, gloomy clouds so darkened the heavens, dim skies often threw out fearful lightning, flashes of fire and many an evil squall, sharp, soaking sleet and smarting snow, the dismal ditches were all dank and wet the low valley flooded all in spate, the level streets and every highway, full of marshes, puddles, mire and clay. 
Well, we can't leave it there. I found another Scottish writer who expressed the view that because Edinburgh was sometimes dark and gloomy and wet, when it was bathed in beautiful light, that made it all the more special. This is Muriel Spark from her novel The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. She's actually describing Jean Brodie at the end of the novel, the teacher in the girls' school who's been a dominant and somewhat dark presence throughout the book, and this is what she writes. Miss Brodie looked beautiful and fragile, just as dark, heavy Edinburgh could suddenly be changed into a floating city when the light was a special pearly white and fell upon one of the gracefully fashioned streets. So, as you'll be picking up, we can't talk about Edinburgh without constantly mentioning its geography. The Scottish capital is in the southeastern county of Midlothian, about five hours' journey by train from London. Edinburgh itself isn't on the coast, but just up the road is the port of Leith, looking out over the Firth of Forth and then on into the North Sea. And everybody but everyone who goes to Edinburgh writes about its stunning, dramatic setting. That castle high up on a hill at the top of the town, surrounded by crags and hills. There's Arthur's Seat, that's 820 feet above sea level. There's Carlton Hill. I think, in fact, there are seven hills surrounding Edinburgh. And it makes for a very beautiful approach, as was noticed in the 19th century by one J.G. Lockhart, who was, in fact, Walter Scott's son-in-law. He wrote of coming across country and seeing Edinburgh for the first time, Quote, the majestic gloom of this most picturesque of cities. He went on to write that as he walked down into the city, he felt himself to be in a stupor of admiration. G.K. Chesterton thought the same, writing in 1905. It seems like a city built on precipices, a perilous city. Great roads rush downhill like rivers in spate. Great buildings rush up like rockets. And all of this is down to geology, all caused by the volcano which erupted many millions of years ago, spewed out lava and created that big high block at one end, tapering off and gradually flattening out down the hill. A good place for a settlement then. Build a castle on the high end of that and you'd be pretty well defended. Gradually, the main road of the old town was built running down the hill and then there were deep valleys on either side surrounded by the hills, so there was only limited space in which to build. In the 15th century, a man-made feature was added to all of this. A loch was created by flooding the ground north of the castle to make it more defensible from that direction. Unfortunately, it gradually became a very smelly dumping ground for all the city's waste, so by the 18th century, it was decided to drain it. And gradually, gradually, on that flat space was created what is today the Prince's Street Gardens, which separates the two halves of the city, the old town from the new town. The old town then is the part that was originally built on that long road down from the castle, and which is known today as the Royal Mile. I think it's actually one and a quarter miles in length. It's got different names as you go down. It's Castle Hill at the top. Then you walk through Lawn Market, the High Street, and right down at the bottom near Holyrood, Cannon Gate. The old town was originally very crowded, space was extremely short, so the only way to build was up. And the result was the construction of 80 very narrow little roads all running off the main central street, which were called closes. And every time more space was needed, 
somebody added a story, and some of those buildings were up to 15 stories high. You may imagine what living conditions were like there, so it's no surprise that from the 18th century onwards, the more well-off decided that this wasn't for them. They were going to escape and build a much more agreeable half to the city, the new town. It was a planned development, classical in style, think parallel streets intersecting, elegant squares, Georgian houses, and it's got a bit of a royal feel to it, especially in the names of the streets. Prince's Street, George Street, King George of course, Queen Street and Charlotte Square, the wife of George III. One last feature I ought to mention, the mound, that was built on the boggy ground left by the draining of the loch, using rubble left over from the construction of the new town. Today it's an elegant feature, home to the Scottish Royal Academy and the National Art Gallery. So, in summary then, a city with a dramatic setting, a city of contrasts, the old town and the new town, and one which I've seen described as a city with a village feel. You can cross it from one end to the other in half an hour. The history of Edinburgh is full of exciting stories and leaves us lots of buildings that you're probably going to be visiting when you go today. So, to try and summarise that in just a few minutes. Think ancient Celtic tribes early on, and for the last millennium or more, basically one long tussle between the rival factions who wanted to rule Scotland, the Scots themselves, and of course, the old enemy, the English. So, if I can try and capture that idea in just a few dates, I might start with 973, when the English king Edward granted King Kenneth II, rule over Lothian. Along came William the Conqueror, battles, fighting. 1291 was the beginning of the first wars of Scottish independence. Edinburgh's growing in status alongside all of this. King David made it a royal borough in 1130, and in the 14th century, Robert the Bruce saw to it that Edinburgh got a new charter, which led to an increase in its importance, more foreign trade, more prosperity and made Edinburgh established as the capital of Scotland. There was an attempt in 1503 to reconcile the two countries. James IV of Scotland married Mary Tudor. A showpiece wedding at the Palace of Holyrood, or rather the Abbey in the grounds next to Holyrood. But that did not stop the 16th century from becoming a very turbulent one in Scottish history. The Scots were defeated by the English at Flodden Field only a few years later, 1513. Then there was the period known as the Rough Wooing, when Henry VIII decided that perhaps the thing to do was marry his son Edward to the infant Mary, Queen of Scots. When the Scots refused to go along with this, he promptly sent troops to Edinburgh to sack and burn the city. It was in the 16th century too that the great religious arguments broke out. Protestantism became established as Scotland's official religion. But events like the return to Scotland of the very Catholic Mary Queen of Scots led to a situation described in the Rough Guide as, quote, a cauldron of religious and political turmoil, huge unrest, massive arguments between Mary Queen of Scots and the Protestant firebrand John Knox. The 17th century began with the accession to the throne of the first king to rule both England and Scotland, James VI of Scotland, Queen Mary's son, who became James I of England. It was another century until the Act of Union with England was signed, 1707, but that wasn't the end either. 
1745 was the Jacobite uprising when Bonnie Prince Charlie, great-grandson of James I and VI, arrived from France and, as the Rough Guide chronology puts it, quote, entered Edinburgh to cheering crowds, occupied Holyrood Palace for over a month, and proclaimed the pretended union of these kingdoms is now at an end. In fact, the Stuarts were defeated the year later, in 1746, at the Battle of Culloden. But in the 18th century, Scotland began to make its name in a different way. That was the period of the Scottish Enlightenment centred around Edinburgh, the building of the new town, the rise of a whole group of intellectuals, writers and scientists who made a name for themselves far beyond the borders of Scotland or indeed the British Isles in general. The 19th century saw closer links with England, the visit of George IV, for example, being the first king for, I think, 200 years to visit Scotland. Queen Victoria came too. She loved Scotland. And a general clean-up was started. There was the Edinburgh City Improvement Act, for example, slum clearance and modernisation. Scottish regiments played a distinguished role in both World War I and World War II, and the late years of the 20th century were all again about the discussion over who was to rule Scotland. Devolution and the reopening of the Scottish Parliament right at the dawn of the 21st century were key events, but that didn't finish everything. 2011 saw the Scottish National Party winning a majority and beginning to press for a referendum. It was duly held in 2014. 55% of Scots voted no, they didn't want to be independent, which of course left nearly half the population saying no, actually that really is what we want. Not helped by the EU referendum a couple of years later, when although the UK voted to leave, 60% of Scotland said they would rather stay. OK, so that's a whistle-stop tour of the history. As to the future, well... Surely there will be, eventually, another referendum on independence? And who knows what the outcome of that will be? So then, Edinburgh today. For many people, perhaps the first thing they think of is the festival, when it seems as if half the world descends on the city in the month of August for both the traditional festival, classical concerts, etc., and the Edinburgh Fringe, and the other period of the year when you're very likely to see Scotland and Edinburgh in particular all over the TV screens, is Hogmanay, or New Year as it's known in Sassanach, England. A celebration which the Scots take very seriously, and which many people, not all of them Scots by any means, wouldn't dream of celebrating anywhere else. The city definitely has a very Scottish feel. You'll see Highland Pipers, for example, along the main street. I remember it very much as being the city of statues. There seem to be so many royalty, enlightenment figures, military heroes. They pop up in all the main streets in both the old and the new town, and Prince's Street Gardens seem to be full of them. It's a city of ghosts too, especially in the old town. So many spooky stories associated with Edinburgh, particularly in all those dark little closes, that you can buy whole books of Edinburgh ghost stories, and the tour guides run specialist tours to frighten you after dark. Perhaps if I had to summarise it, I'd say it's a city of contrasts. There's the grandeur of that beautiful skyline and the gloom of the dark buildings, especially when the sun isn't shining. There is, of course, the old town and the new town, which I saw somewhere described as medieval darkness versus neoclassical grandeur. Definitely a city of ghosts and ghouls, and yet also the city of the Scottish Enlightenment, 
those two things seem to contrast each other. Then there's the royalism-nationalism question, Catholics and Protestants. The fact that Edinburgh is described as being a city with a village feel. And Edinburgh has its own 18th century character who really sums up this duality, this idea of being two people in one. One Deacon Brodie, you'll find a pub in, I think it's the High Street, certainly somewhere on the Royal Mile, called after him. A respectable businessman and councillor by day, and one of the pub signs shows him in that light. But also by night it was discovered eventually a thief and a burglar, to the extent that he was eventually hanged for his crimes. And also hanging outside the pub is a picture of him in that guise. The other split personality associated with the city is, of course, the strange case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, written by R.L. Stevenson, that son of the city, and believed to have been inspired by the Deacon Brodie story. So, a many-faceted city, on which there are going to be 16 episodes in total. This is the first, so episode two next week will be centred round the castle. Where else could you possibly start? An episode about some of the kings of Scotland, about the sieges and battles that were fought there. And then after that, episode three will be on the Palace of Holyrood and indeed the Abbey. A little history, some descriptions of royal weddings and a murder, and some Mary Queen of Scots material. In episode four, I propose a wander down the Royal Mile, looking at some of the famous buildings, St Giles Cathedral, for example, and some of the stories very associated with it. The battle between John Knox and Mary Queen of Scots, for example. Then in episodes five and six, we'll visit the old town and then the new town, respectively. Episode seven is going to relate the story of the two parliaments, the original one, built by St Giles Cathedral, and the new one, Holyrood, built in 1999. And that will be an episode in which to expand a little bit on the long struggle over who rules Edinburgh. Breath of Fresh Air in episode 8, which I'm going to call Walks, Parks and Gardens. So we can go to Princess Street Gardens, which has all sorts of goodies hidden in it, and then round and about outside the city to Arthur's Seat and Colton Hill. Episode 9 will be a chance to visit some of the big museums that aren't going to be mentioned in other episodes, the National Museum of Scotland, notably. And in episode 10, going to potter along the road to Leith, the port city with a history of its own. It was, for example, there where Mary, Queen of Scots, disembarked when she returned to Scotland from France. And it's also the place where the Royal Yacht Britannia has been moored to see out its days and receive the public for visits. So I'll be covering that too. Episode 11, let's go off to the Writers' Museum, which covers mainly the big three writers connected to Edinburgh, they being Sir Walter Scott, Robert Louis Stevenson and Robbie Burns. I'm going to collect all the spooky stories I can find together for episode 12 and call that Ghosts, Witches and Cemeteries. And then in episode 13, we'll go upmarket and look at Edinburgh's art and some of its galleries, the National Gallery and the wonderful Scottish National Portrait Gallery. Episode 14 will be an opportunity to look at key events in the Edinburgh year, so the festival, Hogmanay, etc. Episode 15, Food and Drink. And the last one, episode 16, an anthology of readings from travel writers, from Edinburgh's own authors, just to round things off. Speaking of which, I thought I might end today's episode with a quotation from A.G. MacDonald, who wrote a book in 1937 called My Scotland, 
and took several sentences to express exactly what it was that he loved about Edinburgh. And he's managed to encapsulate so many different aspects of the city that I thought this quote was worth reading in its entirety. So here goes. Edinburgh has all the beauty of half a dozen sorts of beautiful city. The old town has the picturesqueness of Krakow, in grey instead of in red. The squares and crescents of the new town are 18th century at its most elegantly dignified. Prince's Street and the Colton Hill are sheer magnificence. The view from George Street over the Forth and the hills of the Kingdom of Fife is pure San Francisco. And, as if that were not enough beauty and strangeness for one city, in the middle of it all is that incredible castle. To Edinburgh's beauty, add Edinburgh's history. To both, add her men of genius. And her arts, her medicine, her schools, her law, her legends, her traditions. What other capital city in the world, outside Rome and Athens, can equal the result of all that heaping of treasure upon treasure? Well, I hope that leaves you looking forward to the rest of the series. Next week, we're going to crack straight on with episode two, and where else to start but with Edinburgh Castle. I've dug out some lovely descriptions of it from across the centuries, some musings about whether it is or isn't absolutely impregnable. I'm afraid there are a few stories of how the English managed to get inside on occasion, conduct a siege here and there but I've got an equally dramatic tale of how one night in the 14th century 30 very bold Scots got together and, while the English garrison inside was asleep, crept up the outside of the castle on a path described as fitter for a cat than a man. History reveals intrigue and murder aplenty. There is, for example, the gruesome story of the young Earl of Douglas, I think he was only 15 or 16, who was the victim of a terrible plot. A contemporary wrote that he'd been undone by falsehood and treacherous intention. And I'm afraid the ending is that he was murdered. So I'll be bringing you the wheres and whyfors about that. There's another story about the crown, the sceptre and the sword of Scotland, which disappeared shortly after the Act of Union in 1707 and were rediscovered very dramatically in 1817. The author, Walter Scott, no less, oversaw the dramatic unlocking of dusty boxes which had lain around for more than a century. And yes, when they opened them, guess what they found? There's gossip aplenty too, all mixed up with some very important moments of history. For example, it was in Edinburgh Castle that Mary Queen of Scots gave birth to her only son, James. That was in 1566. But no sooner had the baby been born than the parents began to argue about who the father really was. Mary apparently said to Darnley, My lord, here I protest unto God, and as I shall answer at the great day of judgment, this is your son, and no other man's son. Did Darnley believe her? Possibly not. It's said that he, quote, fed suspicions about the fatherhood of the baby by refusing to attend the baptism. So you can hear there should be lots of interesting stuff to retell and I hope very much that you will join me to hear it. Meanwhile, just a quick word to anybody who's new or newish to City Breaks. Welcome, of course. But can I also add that there are already eight other series already in the bag, findable on the website, and through all the usual podcast platforms, and of course, of course, completely free to download. 
There's London and Paris if you're looking for a big hitter sort of city. If it's beauty and art and culture you want, well, I hope you find that in any series, but particularly so perhaps in Florence or St. Petersburg or the lovely Georgian city of Bath here in the UK. If you want a slightly exotic Southern European feel, then we have Seville and Toulouse on offer. And for history buffs in particular, perhaps, the lovely South German city of Munich, where, of course, I cover the events of the 1920s and 30s and World War II, much of which you may be aware of, but perhaps you don't know some of the interesting 19th century stories about the mad Bavarian kings and the lovely castles they built. Or about Munich as a centre of art at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. The cafes frequented by musicians and writers. The Blue Rider group of expressionist painters, who for a short moment had world attention fixed precisely on them and their work. OK, so I hope you're getting the idea. Whichever series you choose, you'll find in there, I hope, all the history and culture that it would be good to know before visiting. Or indeed, just for general interest. Stuff you'd like to look up and read about for yourself, if only you had the time. So if that does sound like your thing, do give us a try. What would also be really nice would be some feedback. If you could leave a review wherever you're listening to this, that would be great. Perhaps you care to check out the website, www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk or maybe you'd like to send a comment directly to our email address, citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk But above all, please do join me next week for episode 2 on Edinburgh and for the subsequent episodes. There are 16 planned in total. So, thank you very much for listening today and until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.